Hi, everyone. My name is Benno Papari, and this is the Songwriters on Process podcast. Since 2010, I've interviewed over 300 songwriters about, well, their songwriting process. I don't care about favorite cities, tour stories, favorite foods, or anything like that. My goal has always been to treat songwriters the same way that we treat poets and more traditional prose writers. They are writers, plain and simple. In these interviews, we go deep into the specifics of the writing process. This is no, hey, do you start with lyrics of the music type of interview. Now, a little bit about me. I'm not a songwriter. In fact, I've never written a song in my life. I have a PhD in English language and literature, and I'm a former academic. So as a prose writer, I enjoy exploring how my process intersects with those of songwriters. This is an intelligent conversation about writing between two writers. And that, of course, means we talk a lot about books. The site features interviews across all genres, from metal to jazz, from country to that big category known as indie. You'll find a couple of A-list actors on the site and several members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as well. Now, I select songwriters to interview uh, who fit into one of two categories. One, do I listen to them already? And two, if I don't, would they make for a compelling and intelligent interview? You can find these interviews across all podcast platforms, as well as at songwritersonpodcast.com. Do you have an idea for an interview or a comment about the site? Hit me up at ben at songwritersonprocess.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy. And today we have MC Taylor of His Golden Messenger on the podcast. Uh, this is the second time I've interviewed Taylor. The first was in, I believe, 2017. And to this day, he is still the only songwriter to talk about how much they love uh, haiku. Um, we talked about it um, in this episode, too. But last time we did, too, I never heard that before. So here's the thing about Hiss. Um, the band received a Grammy nomination in 2019 for their album Terms of Surrender uh, under Best Americana, uh, the Best Americana category. And... Um, but if you go to the Wikipedia page, and I'm not saying Wikipedia is the, it's certainly necessarily an authority, but the genre it's listed as is in the, uh, the column on the right, I'm reading this, indie folk, blues, alternative country, country rock, and then the musical style, they said in the actual entry, uh, folk, country, dub, country, soul, rhythm and blues, bluegrass, jazz, funk, swamp pop, gospel, blues, and rock. Um that I bring that up because one of the things we we talked extensively about is the getting pigeonholed into the type of uh, art that you create and how it's important. And I wrote this down because it's an amazing quote. What Taylor told me, he said, "Surprising yourself is the only way to stay inspired." But uh, that sense of maybe a little bit of frustration at his being uh, his gold messenger being kind of pigeonholed with that Americana label and talking about how um, freeing it is to break away from that and to, get to, to create other types of art. And he does that under other, as you'll hear in the, in the, um, in the podcast, uh, he creates art music under uh, other names as well, really to kind of break free of that and to stay inspired and fresh and create other types of music. So um, the other thing I want to say about this, and I love this interview, is... Um, whenever I ask him a question, there's an incredible depth to his responses. Um, it wasn't just the, it wasn't just answering my questions. It was, I would ask a question and he would pause for a couple of seconds and 
dead air because he's thinking about the response. He's thinking about the quality of his response. And, and, um, and that's why the responses are so deep. It, it was not just answering the question. It was then wondering why he does the thing that he does. Um, you know, when I would ask him various things about his process, but just the depth of the responses, just like, again, this is on video. We do this, these things on zoom, but you could just see him thinking and pondering. And, and I, I appreciate that so much. So both, um, both conversations I've had with him have been fantastic. And of course we talked, he reads every day. He reads, I mean, I, you know, I think I read a lot. He puts me to shame. He reads every day in the morning and at night, uh, at least, but morning starts the day reading, ends the day reading and his entire family does that. That's amazing. But Hey, listen, when you read that much, you write great lyrics. Those things are connected and you can see that here. I'm a big fan of, of him and of the music. So this was a lot of fun. So with that, MC Taylor, welcome to the podcast. All right, let's get started. So, you know, I always start by asking how important, how important is it to create in some fashion every day? I mean, I feel like when we, I read interviews with prose writers, you, you, you know, prose writers are pretty set on, you got to do something every day, but I find that songwriters tend not to necessarily feel that way. It's more of a you know, some of them think it's more of a don't push it. It's a right when you feel inspired kind of thing. So where do you fall on that, on that spectrum of, of, of writing every day in some fashion? Um, uh, yeah, I, I'm, um, I'm not sure that I believe in that for myself because, um, experience has taught me that when I, um, when I set up a schedule that requires me to like put pen to paper and fingers to guitar every day, I quickly create an expectation in my brain that I need to be completing something, which then makes me start thinking about what the life of that thing might be within my catalog of of songs and that can create issues for me because i feel like later on the songs that have been written on a schedule like that feel more forced in hmm. some way um, I think that, uh, and I don't really, I don't really like that, you know, some other people might not, listeners might not hear that, but I can hear it. And it's something that kind of like rubs me the wrong way. Um, that said, I, I do like try and leave myself open to the possibility that something may get written every day. Um, I'm certainly like jotting little things down in my notebook or phone every every day and i'm certainly around music i feel like this is an important piece for me i'm certainly around music and engaging with music not necessarily my own music but engaging with music every day um 
I'm definitely an omnivorous musical listener and I feel fortunate to like still have that, that fire as a music listener this far into my life and this far into my life as, as a musician, I still, um, feel really inspired by music, not my own music and not even necessarily the process of creation, although I can't help but listen to music with an ear towards like how that artist made that music. But, you know, I'm surrounded by records here. Um, my whole house is full of records. I'm buying records all the time, I'm always listening to stuff. Um, most of it at this point in my life, outside of the genres that I, that people might think are the Hiskold messenger genres. Um, so I'm, I'm always like, I'm always seeking. Um, and you know, then occasionally I find something that's so compelling that it drives me to my instrument to try and see whether I might create something that like feels, feels that way. There are other times when, for one reason or another, I am writing every day. But it's not me getting up to write every day because I'm a songwriter and this is what I do. It's more just like I'm, I'm feeling the spirit is, the spirit is there in the room and it's just, I'm just doing it because it feels like what I should be doing. You said something earlier, said something earlier about it. Um, you can hear when it's forced but the listener probably can't. So I'm, I'm curious, how do you, are there, can you pinpoint, you know, when that song feels forced to you, how does that sound? Um, I think it's, I think it's probably mostly, uh, um, it's mostly a question of like either word choice as far as the lyrics go or rhythmic, you know, like, a, a, I hear myself in a rhythmic rut that I might not have noticed at the time, but you know, is, is like, I might hear myself like being in a, in a default mode in terms of rhythm or, or or words imagery or or theme i mean which is kind of funny because like i tend to think of myself as someone that like has a set of themes that i've been exploring consistently my whole career yeah um i'm not like i'm not really reinventing my my thematic um you know what what my my themes are i i don't really want to i don't feel the need to because like they're so they feel so vast to me um but they're i feel like when I'm hearing something of mine that feels forced, it feels like I'm addressing 
my themes in way in in a way that I've already done. Hmm. And I'm curious if the word choice, like would the word choice kind of feel stale? Do you think there's more cliches uh, that you're not reaching for new things? I'm one, you know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think so. And it's not even that like the word necessarily has to be fresh, but it has to feel fresh in the context of the song. Hmm. So, you know, um, I was reading a review of Jump for Joy this morning, and it talks about um, the song I Saw the New Day, which is the third song on the, or uh, second song, second proper song on the, on the record. And I think the the review was sort of suggesting that the the phrase I saw the new day in the world was somewhat like anodyne. And um I was thinking, yeah, on paper, if you just saw that line on paper. Yeah, I could understand how that might feel like so wide open as to be almost meaningless. But in the context of the song, it's actually it, it, it to me at least as the writer of it, it feels there's a sharpness to it. I mean, I chose that line um intentionally and and for a very specific reason. Um so all that to say, you know, if I'm thinking about like word choice, yeah, it has everything to do with context because, you know, sometimes the plainest words feel like they're the right words to me. You know, I mentioned I interviewed Jerry Harrison to the Talking Heads or, or sorry, Talking Heads. I didn't realize it was just Talking Heads, not the Talking Heads. Uh -huh. um, and And he said something, what we're talking about, he said, he talked about how the use of cliches can be so powerful in songwriting. And I said, wait a minute, like as someone who taught writing, I would never tell my students to use cliches. It's stale language. But he really challenged me on that with songwriting. And he said that cliches can be powerful. And I think he said, Jonathan Richmond uses cliches really well in his songwriting. And I never thought about that before because I think we're so conditioned to think of that plain, ordinary language as just being lazy. Yeah, I mean it's it's tricky. Um but I think I think he may be right because there are so many mitigating factors to cliche. You know, yeah. it has everything to do with voice and voice being part of the context of how the quote unquote cliche is being deployed. It's kind of like I don't know. I think about like a, a lot of, um, you know, if, if we're, if we're kind of like, sh if I'm shifting right now between like cliche into like plain, plain language, right. Yeah. Sort of unadorned language. Um, I think a lot about, and this is something that has like inspired my own writing for forever think a lot about like some of the classic and um, I bet we even talked about this years ago I um but I think a lot about 
some of the classic like Japanese haiku poets like Busan, Isa, Basho, who, um, you know, really relied on the way that the, the like plain words played with one another to create something that was greater than the sum of, of the 17 syllables or whatever, whatever it is. Um, and, and I feel like I, I sort of take that as inspiration too. I mean, there are some times when I'm trying to think poetically in terms of word choice. And there are some times when I'm challenging myself to, to think in plain language and see whether I can create something, uh, whether I can create a poetic atmosphere out of some combination of plain, plain words. Um, just not like something <clears throat> never like talked about this in any kind of interview because like nobody cares, <laughs> but it is part of the, it's part of the process on a, like a granular level. If you're someone that is working with, with words and, and in terms of like the lyrical component of what I do, I think of myself as a poet and that's mm -hmm. not like, it's not me, you know, a poet has all kinds of connotations, I think, which is like why I, I'm always hesitant to use the word because it suggests something that I think I, I don't intend, but really like, I think of poets as people that really sort of get down to like granular brass tacks in terms of word choice rhythm sequence of words the way that you know alliteration all that stuff all that stuff is at play when i'm trying to figure out how to write what i'm writing i think it took t.s Eliot 17 years to write the wasteland and that's obviously a <laughs> long poem i think it was 17 years but isn't that the isn't that why poetry is such considered to be such high art because it is plain language i mean the the best poets um, you know, allow us to see things, everyday things in ways that we've never seen them before. And I have a mm -hmm. great story I have for you is one of my favorite poets is Lee Young Lee. And mm -hmm. I had the, um, the good fortune of interviewing him. And he said something like, he said, he's, it, I have the, the quote is mind blowing, but he says something about when he wakes up in the morning, he sees the outline of his wife, his body and his wife's body in the bed sheets. And he's been trying to write a poem about it for, I think he said like 30 years or something like that. And he's never been able to, but he yeah. sees the beauty in the outline of the bodies. I see a messy bed, but he said that he's been driving him, you know, he's been trying to write a poem for years, but he can't access it. Yeah. And it was just incredible. But I think that's what, you know, it's not just the playing la language. It's seeing the beauty in things that we never see beauty in user right. plain language right yeah I, yeah i mean that's that's like that's really where the that's that's yeah that's where the the sort of like elevation of everyday vernacular into something heightened happens is this yeah is this like use of 
words that we use every day to describe something that we may see every day, but have all of a sudden understood to have a deeper existential significance for us. Um, yeah. And, and like, I, I really, I, you know, part of me thinks that like my favorite poetry feels almost, almost breathless in terms of, of the, uh, the poet sort of allowing the, the muse or the spirit or whatever you want to call it into the room and letting that entity do whatever it is it's doing in that room. And like our job is to help it be comfortable and not scare it away. It's like, you know, or maybe like another metaphor would be like, it's, it's almost like, it's almost like tightrope walking, which, which can, can look so beautiful and poetic in its own way. And if you look down, you start to second guess what you're doing. So the idea is to like, keep yourself from looking down to, in order to maintain the atmosphere, the like heightened atmosphere. You know, I'm a voracious reader. When I don't read for a couple of days, it really bothers me. Um, mm -hmm. In the perfect world, I would read every day, but I just sometimes I can't, and I try. But there's a, a you know, there's a point after a couple of days, and it really starts to eat at me. Um, so if you're not writing or reading either one or both after a couple of days, do you also get that sense of I really need to be doing this? Um, as an artist or just as a person. Yeah. I mean, I think <clears throat> now being in the presence of, of, of art is important to me. And, and I do, I do actually read every day, whether it's a lot or a little, whether it's something serious or, you know, quote unquote serious or, or not as serious. Like I'm always, I always start my day by reading something often not on the phone but like a book or something and i end my day reading it's something that i've done my entire life since i learned to read it's just it's it's how i do it it's how we do it in this house my son is the same way my daughter's the same way my wife you know that's what we're just like we're we're book people or whatever um in terms of my own craft there have been times in my songwriting life where um, I felt like, you know, if I wasn't working on something, the anxiety of the fact that I call myself a songwriter and I'm not working on anything really would bother me and create feelings of guilt and, um, you know, amplify my, my, uh, imposter syndrome and I don't think that I function that way anymore because mm -hmm. I think I've, I've shown myself that when it's time to show up, I can show up and I can do the work and I have certain ways that um, I'm comfortable working. And, and I also understand when I need to push myself into a, into a new place. Um, I, I, I feel like, you know, while it's very hard slash impossible for me to be 
objective about what I'm doing. I do actually know when I'm when I'm heading for one sort of ditch or another creatively, or when I'm kind of when I've sort of worn a rut in the in the road that that you know, and I need to maybe find a new road. You mean that's so? How do you know that? Uh, is there a point of uh, that's interesting? How do you know? Do you mean actually when you're writing, you feel like, oh, this isn't happening. I need, I shouldn't be pushing this anymore. Yeah. Sometimes huh. it's that. Sometimes it's that. Sometimes I will understand that that's happening, but I will, um, I'll, I'll finish the song anyway because we've already made it this far. Let's see what happens in the last verse or the last chorus, or maybe there's a bridge that might spice things up. I, I think what it is is that I'm not as precious about my songs as as I once was. I'm not as scared that the I'm not as scared that the craft may desert me somehow. Um and I think that also is the reason why you know in the past five years i've been i've I've become much more comfortable doing things like co-writing with people i generally don't co-write songs for his golden messenger records because i still think of his records as as these very personal vessels um although even on a couple of the last his records there have been some stuff that i've I've written at least a little bit with other people, but at this point in time, I think of myself as a songwriter that generally knows how to do it, that has certain ways of doing it that are di certainly different from the ways other people do it. But like, if I walk into a room on a co-write session um, with another established songwriter, like I, I can I can hold my own, not in a not in a, a chest thumping kind of way, but uh, you know, um, I'm just confident in my in whatever it is that I do, whatever the specific type of songwriting that I do. Um, I mean, you're asking how do I know? I mean, it, it's sort of like going back to the word choice thing. You can just kind of hear it and go like. I feel like I already have a song like this. Like, I feel like I did something like this in the past and it was more successful. It sort of like hit the target a little bit better than what I'm doing now. Sometimes I have to write a few of those to get to the, the place that I'm trying to get to. And then I understand like, oh, okay. Those three songs before that kind of all sounded the same and they all sounded like another song I've already written. That was my way of ending up at this place, which actually does sound to me or feel to me like something new. Um, and, you know, over the past couple of years, um, I have done. I, I have undertaken projects to really shake up the way that I think about music. So I've made this record under the name Revelators, uh, which you might not have even heard, but this Revelators record came out like a year or two ago. It's a, it's a collaboration with, 
my friend Cameron Ralston, who lives in um, in Richmond. It's it's non lyrical. It's like a it's like a free jazz record, basically. It's like a sort of c- cacophonous, grooving free jazz dub record with no lyrics and no singing. And um, I'd always wanted to do something like that. The music that inspired me to to make that record has always is like such a big part of my DNA that and it only creeps into his records in sort of subtle ways and I just thought like I, I need to do this I need to get so far outside of my comfort zone um, just because it sounds fun to me like I need to step into the total unknown and um, I would say actually making that record was the was was really the biggest inspiration sonically for like what jump for joy became um just because it forced me to reckon with a lot of self-imposed musical boundaries that i sort of have erected in in my in my musical life for really no reason You know, I think for me, I mean, again, I'm a I'm a prose writer, never written a song in my life, but I but I do find though you would talk about differences and kind of switching things up and making things fresh. Um, and I'm talking about the specific the specifics of my writing process, but uh, when I like I never write and revise in the same chair. That's my thing. Like I always yeah. it's gotta be different. The closer I am to the writing process when I revise you know, the harder it is. So I'm, that's how I keep it fresh. Like I separate those things entirely, the exact opposite. Yeah. Um, uh, and I find that, you know, I have a chair I write in, a chair I revise in. And if I'm not feeling it in the chair when I'm writing, I go to another room. Yeah. Um, again, that's different from what you're talking about, but at least it kind of reminds me of yeah, but not process. yeah, not not really though. I mean, it's it's like the same. Yeah, it's the same kind of idea. Like, let's put our let's place ourselves in a, in a different place, whether whether it's like, you know, a different physical place or or not. Like, I think the idea is about the same. Let let me be in a place that, um, yeah, let me be in a different place. And also let me, I mean, in terms of what you're talking about, let me subject the material that was written in one place to the effects of a different physical place and see whether it still stands up. That's something that I that I also do is like, let me take this song and see if it works over here. Because if it works over here, then I know that the fundamentals are basically sound. Um, I want to ask you this, because I don't know if this was a COVID thing, but now that you mentioned this, the number of songwriters I interviewed the past two or three years who, whenever they were composing and they had their guitar, they had to be walking around. They could never Ooh. sit in the chair that actually they said, you know, and they had to walk around, then move the pad to another room. But they'd always have to be walking around when they were composing. And I, that's a whole other issue of maybe it's a confinement thing but i'm curious when do you stand up or sit down i with your guitar when you're composing <laughs> um i i'm generally sitting are you okay. yeah yeah i generally sit down <laughs> um, i'm a 
I'm a lazy person, so <laughs> no deeper than that. Yeah. Uh, but and it gosh, you told I think Aaron Ray told me that. And yeah, a cup. Oh gosh. Uh Kevin Morby, I think, told me that too. And I think it was then they found that I think the footsteps even created like an additional layer of rhythm or something. It was oh yeah. Um yeah, I mean it makes sense to me. I can I can see how that would that would be the case. Uh, I don't particularly do it, but yeah, you know, COVID was a as a COVID was a time of walking. <laughs> yeah, a lot of a lot of walks during COVID. Well, actually, I was going to ask you that anyway. I mean, the role of movement um, to the process. I mean, I I I wrote about this. I've written about this in the Washington Post. The connection between um, exercise and in higher order thinking, there's a very clear link between that, that aerobic exercise has the immediate impact it has post-exercise for about 90 minutes. So, Mm. so here's this, and it's been replicated in the lab, but I'm a big runner and I'd find that I was coming back from runs and feeling inspired to write. So the research has been done extensively. What they found was they put people on a treadmill for 20 minutes <laughs> at 60% max heart rate, which is not much more than a moderate walk, and then administer a battery of, battery of tests to them afterwards. And those people always scored higher than people who didn't who weren't on the treadmill because there's a chemical in the brain called brain-derived neurotrophic factor that gets secreted ah. just through exercise. And the benefit lasts about 90 minutes post-exercise. Um, and what they found was that... The ideal is 30 minutes at 60%, and 60% heart rate isn't much more than a moderate walk. So the good news is it's not dose responsive. So 60 minutes isn't twice as good as 30 minutes. 90% max heart rate isn't better than 60%. But ah. the, 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 there's a couple caveats. The exercise has to be something that requires as little, little brain power as possible. So they found the effect gets negated if you're walking in an urban environment. As opposed ah. to because you're trying not to get hit by cars. Yeah, um, yeah. they've yeah. also found that treadmills are not as effective as let's say bikes, because in a treadmill, there is an issue of balance. You're trying yeah. to maintain your balance. And if you're doing anything like reading a book or playing Wii Fit or anything like that, the effect gets wiped out. Um, and and also I've written about this um with uh, the effect it has on kids too. You have kids, I have kids. And that schools should not be getting rid of recess and things like that, but because the benefit with kids is just as powerful. Yeah. Um, so, and and real quick, they what I did in my research, what I found in my research was that some school systems now are dropping kids off on the bus about a half mile, three quarters of a mile before the school and the kids walk to school, <laughs> but, but they're finding benefits to that. I believe um, it. I and it's amazing. It. And so I'm curious, I mean, you said that COVID was a time of walking, but I'm curious if movement does play a role in your process. Um, I'm, I mean, move, movement plays a role in my life for yeah. sure. I, I'm, I, I go to the gym six days a week. Yeah. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm doing like, purely aerobic so i don't i don't know if this um if what you're talking about applies to what i what i do but i suspect it does um i uh yeah i go i go to the gym six or seven days a week um always in the morning the type of exercise i'm doing is 
um, is aerobic cardio. It's all aerobic and cardio. Um, and like, I just, I sweat like crazy every, every day. And, um, yeah, I'm not playing games or anything on my phone yeah. while, I'm, while I'm doing it. I don't think I, I could. It's like, it would be too hard. Um, I feel like movements and, and I've been doing this for, for, for a while. I mean, I, I've always been an active person and I feel like I've really notched up my, my exercise in the past two years, probably. Um, I think it makes my brain function better. I think it makes me feel better as a human. It, 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 it tamps down my, my anxiety, my slide towards hypochondria. No, no question. Um, you know, like every little, every little tick of the heart doesn't feel like a, an impending heart attack to me, um, anymore because, I know that like I'm taking care of myself and um, so existentially it's, it's hugely, it's hugely impactful just in terms of like being in a good headspace and being in a good headspace is really important to me in order to create things that feel um, that feel like emotionally full that don't feel like they're written um, figuratively in and literally in A minor, but actually, you know, the, the chordal qualities of my, of, of the stuff that I write when I'm in a good headspace are just richer, are just yeah. like rich, richer and deeper. So, and I, and I know, I know, I know this is, this is true because again like i have i have examples of it i mean true to me yeah um so does movement have uh, a bearing on like my creative life definitely it has a bearing on on everything in my life um uh, including the creative parts of it which are a really big part of, of it yeah, I mean, if you're if you're in a better headspace, you're more more motivated to create. I don't think it's anything more complicated than that. Yeah, that's that's right. And and yeah, you're you're more excited, inspired. Um, yeah, you you've got like a you've got a hunger to to chase after the thing that you love to do. Yeah. All right, I've got a couple more questions. I want to read you a quote. This is one of my favorite quotes. I've got some author quotes. And this is a quote that songwriters love, and I'll repeat it, but it's by the novelist E.L. Doctorow. And he says, and I'm curious how you think this applies to your songwriting. He says, writing is like driving at night in the fog. You can only see as far as the headlights, but you can make the whole trip that way. So <laughs> I'll repeat that. Writing is like driving at night in the fog. You can only see as far as the headlights, but you can make the whole trip that way. Um, so for me, at least again, I'm a prose writer. When I start writing, I don't think I have any right knowing what it's supposed to look like at the end. So yeah. I really resonate with that idea that I don't think I have any right knowing. And I think if I did know that will make for an inferior product. Sure. So as a songwriter, 
how does that apply to you? Um, yeah, I think, I think, um, I think the way that, that I think about this idea of fog that Dr. O was talking about is, is, is letting, is letting the mystery, is letting the mystery be. Um, and, you know, I feel like because of, of the way that we have been conditioned as, I'm not sure if, yeah, just as 21st century humans to, to dispel mystery because it's unproductive, right? Uh, but I find that that you have to let you have to let the mystery sort of envelop the craft in order to surprise yourself. And surprising yourself is like the only way that you're going to continue to be inspired. I think that, um, and and that's really like why I feel like why I often feel like I'm pushing up against the boundaries of what is quote unquote like Americana or songwriter music because I feel like oftentimes there's not enough mystery in it for me. And, and that's also I feel like why his golden messenger records that ha have often stood like to the side of that kind of world like we're included in that world you know I end up on like I end up very high on the Americana radio charts. Right. But at the same time, like I'm often when people are when people when the gatekeepers of that world are thinking about who are thinking about the like standard bearers of Americana. His Golden Messenger is a hard thing for them to wrap their heads around. Um, maybe because the way that I deal with the mystery, with the fog, is just slightly different than other people. I don't know. But, like, yeah, I like that quote. It makes complete sense to me. I mean, I don't think of the mystery, the fog, as anything, as anything ominous at this point. It feels like totally necessary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. One more the, from Agatha Christie. The best time to write a book is when you're doing the dishes. And <laughs> for me, and I hear a lot, you know, songwriters that talk a lot, and I do too, about getting ideas when you're doing mundane activities something yeah. about the and you know i've heard everything from vacuuming to folding laundry to doing the dishes to chopping vegetables to gardening that when we can turn our conscious brain off doing an activity that requires no conscious thought that's when the ideas bubble to the top so um does that happen to you yeah i have a lot of thoughts about that one um you know that is often like I'll often come up with ideas when I'm, yeah, doing some sort of mundane task. And I've learned over the years, like, if if a line pops into my head, 
I, I do actually need to stop and write it down. I always, every time, every time it happens, I tell myself like, that's really good. I'm, I'm going to remember that for sure. That's too good to forget. And I can't tell you the number of, <laughs> the number of lines that I've lost that way. It's like, it's, so I've learned to like keep a notebook or some kind of some way to record that line. I've learned to keep something like that close by and to not, uh, to, to treat those thoughts that arrive in mundane moments seriously, actually, because they're going to be super helpful in some way. Um, yeah, I mean, and there's, there's oftentimes there's stuff that shows up in those moments that doesn't make a ton of sense to me and sometimes will continue to not make sense in terms of like this, it might even just be like the syntax of the, of how it's being said. It might not make sense to me until much later. It may like even end up on a record and I'm still not entirely sure what I mean, but I have this sense that I will eventually. Right. Um, and then the last thing I'll say about that is that, you know, I think every songwriter will say that, like, there are times when a song shows up very quickly. I think a lot of times um, when you're on the trail of a song, it just requires, you know, when you're actually down digging that particular ditch, it just requires like some some sweat to get it out. But every once in a while, maybe just to keep us totally off balance, the cosmos will deliver a song really quickly. <laughs> and speaking for myself, I sometimes have trouble trusting those songs because it feels like not enough labor went into the song to take it seriously. Wow. And um, so I also have to let those songs, I, I do have to take those songs seriously. Um, and there's this, um, there's this anecdote that I feel like I heard in high school that I think about all the time still, because I love it so much about, you've probably heard it too. It's, it's a pretty basic story about um, someone coming up to Picasso in a cafe and saying like, Hey, would you just do like a quick little sketch for me? I love your stuff. You know, the story. No. And, oh, okay. Well, you just do a quick little sketch for me. And Picasso says like, Oh yeah, sure. No problem. And he does a sketch and just two minutes or five minutes on a napkin and hands this admirer, the sketch. And he says like, you know, that that'll be $10,000. Let's just call that $10,000. And the person says, like, is a, is like taken aback and says, I mean, $10,000, that only took you like two minutes. And he says something to the effect of, well, yeah, but like it took me 40 years to learn how to make a two-minute sketch. And so, like, I, I do, you know, when a song ar arrives quickly, um... I need to like sort of think of it through that lens, which is like, 
this particular song came fast, but but the reason that it came fast is that I've been putting my brain to composition for 30 years. Um, so a song like 20 Years in a Nickel, which is the first song on this new record, Jump for Joy, is a song that um, that arrived, you know, in probably 20 minutes. That wasn't the case with any of the other record songs on the record. And I really wasn't taking it very seriously. Um, it wasn't until it started to like bump up against the other songs on the record that I realized that like the way that the, the sort of like thematic uh, friction and um, sort of like, yeah, the, the, thematically it, it, it worked really well with the, with the rest of the songs. But there was, but there was a while where I was like, I mean, this song is, this is just like a little, this is just some little thing. This is not a real song. It was came way too quick to take it seriously. I've never thought of it that way. That's just you know not trusting it because you feel like that was too easy. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, all right. Last last question. I just finished reading uh, the Jennifer Egan book. Candy House. Uh, it's a sequel mm -hmm. to you know Re Return of the Goon Squad. Re Return of the Goon Squad. Visit from the Goon Squad. I, but anyway, great book. So, um, and I know obviously you're a voracious reader. So, besides the haiku, because I know you're a haiku fan, we did talk about that last time. Um, fiction writers, who are you leaning towards now, or what kind of reading are you doing? Oh well, um, I um, I feel like much like my music listening my 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 reading sort of runs in seasonal cycles um so like summer months for whatever reason maybe it's because like i have this like notion of like there being such a thing as like a beach a beach read <laughs> um i feel like in the warm months i am reading a lot of a lot of like mystery and detective stuff. So like um, Donald Westlake, um, Ross McDonald, who like for my money is one of the greatest American writers that ever lived. Um, um, I read a lot of like George Simenon. So a lot of like the May Gray novels is just, you know, there's a certain like elegance to those, but also like a certain sameness to them. Like I've probably read 30 of those books and I couldn't tell you the plot of a single one. The atmosphere is like what I'm, what I'm chasing. Um, gosh, what else? I mean, I think because I've read so many, um, so many noir books, but I'd never read any Raymond Chandler, which is really, yeah, which is sort of strange. It's like I started at the end. And so this summer I read like three Raymond Chandler books in, in very quick succession and was like, okay, that was like a, that was clearly a missing piece of the puzzle for me. Like, uh, that, yeah, you know, I I still maintain that Ross McDonald is a superior writer, but he wouldn't he wouldn't exist. Raymond Chandler. Um, um yeah. 
And then so, but but I needed to give them, I needed to give the mystery, um, needed to give the mystery stuff a break because like it started to feel, it really started to feel like I was reading the same book over and over. So I am currently rereading, um, I'm currently rereading the book Masters of Atlantis. You know this book? I've heard of it. Masters of Atlantis is, um, I think it might be the last book by Charles Portis, who wrote okay. True Grit. And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's like a, it's a profoundly funny book. And like, I wouldn't say that like comedy in in books is a thing that I ever really seek out. But like, this book is like laugh out loud funny. Hmm. If so, uh, um, so that's what I'm reading right now. Have you read any uh, S.A. Cosby? Do you know S.A. Cosby? He wrote no. uh, Razorblade Tears, Blacktop Wasteland. Um, he's from rural Virginia. Um, and uh, he writes these uh, kind of detective slash crime novels. Not crime. It's, it's crime, but it's not from a mystery point of view. Um, so, and Stephen King wrote about him in the he's been on npr but stephen king gave him a glowing review in the new york yeah. times but yeah he, he's from rural virginia and um they're making razor blade tears i think into a movie but it's about these two guys these two ex-cons who get out of prison and um they find out that their sons they get out of prison for hard crimes and their sons are lovers and are mm -hmm. murdered together and the police won't solve the crime, have no interest in solving the crime. So these guys go try to solve it themselves. Oh, and, cool. But it's, it's, he's amazing. And uh, true, I mean, in full disclosure, I've, I've interviewed him and he's an amazing interview. Uh, but it's a great book because it's really this kind of, it takes place in rural Virginia and you don't have a lot of books taking place in rural Virginia yeah. and yeah. that kind of, you know, country roads and, and fast cars and things like that. It's fantastic. S.A. Cosby. Yeah. Okay. I'll have to check that out. I mean, yeah. I love, I love like, a. have really, I love things that work within a genre, but then start to push out against whatever the rules may be of that genre. That's yeah. why, that's why I love detective fiction. Um, and it's why I love, it's why honestly why I love like reggae and dub music yeah. because there is a template and then, and then there are the practitioners and, and there are the practitioners that adhere really closely to the like rules, which I appreciate. And there are the people that that really like kind of break the rules. And I also love that. Um, I love understanding like what the boundaries of the form are so that I can understand when it's being broken. And thank you very much, MC Taylor of His Golden Messenger for that. And uh, don't forget to pick up His Golden Messenger's latest album, Jump for Joy, out now on Merge Records. And that's it for today's episode. Check back in a couple of weeks for a new episode. I do try to post these every two weeks, uh, sometimes with more frequency, sometimes with less. A lot of that depends on my work commitments, my family commitments, and also when artists can talk to me. It's not easy to get these interviews. 
Speaking of interviews, did you know this is a relatively new podcast? Uh, I only started podcasting about a year ago. Uh, well, depending on when you're listening to this, I should say 2022. But from 2010 to 2022, uh, all of my interviews were transcribed and they are all there archived for you to go down that deep rabbit hole. So if you go to songwritersonpodcast.com and click on from the archives in the top, at the top, you'll see all of those transcribed interviews. I think there's over 200. Uh, so go down that rabbit hole. There's a lot of great interviews there. Um, but uh, you'll find all of those there. Again, the podcast itself is relatively recent. So there's a lot, a lot of reading you need to be catching up on with those old interviews. Speaking of interviews, uh, if you have suggestions for interview subjects or want to comment or complain, anything like that, email me at ben at songwritersonprocess.com. That's ben at, ben at songwritersonprocess.com. And that's it for today's episode. This wraps it up. Thank you very much for listening and have a good one.